Go sit down. <laughs> Take your Bible, if you will, turn to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Start in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 6 this morning when you find that located, of course, in your Old Testament. We'll go to, go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Ask that He would be our teacher this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're looking at the first eight verses together this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 6. And trust you found that. And let's go to the word, just the Lord of prayer, and ask him to be our teacher. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the moments that are before us. Uh, we're thankful for the opportunity that we've had to sing. Uh, Lord, as we enter into this week of, uh, Lord, looking forward to uh, the Easter celebration coming up, Lord, that we can remember how uh, you entered Jerusalem, Lord, and how uh, this week of of your passion, Lord, was led up to the event that sets us apart as, Lord, having a Savior that uh, no longer just died for us, but, Father, rose again and uh, intercedes on our behalf today. We're so grateful for our salvation. Where would we be without it? I'd ask now, Lord, that as we take your word, that it would become our teacher, the Holy Spirit would be free to put his hand upon the areas of our life we need that. Pray that I would be minimized and the Lord Jesus Christ would be maximized. And we pray these things in His name. Amen. It seems like I've been a little bit of a visitor here over the last number of months. I've been traveling a little bit with the school. I've been busy down there with some things. So it is good to, to be back with you. Uh, you folks know that I'm involved uh, quite a bit in music down there and often getting on the road and having opportunity to open the Word a little bit. Music, uh, passion, kind of after my own heart. I don't know if you heard the, uh, the story about the percussionist who was at a music college. And during one particular rehearsal, he kept making mistake after mistake after mistake. And finally, the conductor got so upset, he just stopped the whole practice. And he sneered and he looked at the drummer at the back and he said, When you're too stupid to play anything else, we give you two sticks, we put you in the back and we call you a drummer. The drummer was so upset that he shot back to the man up front. And when you're too stupid to hang on to both sticks, they give you one up front and they call you a conductor. So, oh, the battles we have over our music. And uh, those drummers, they're not always that stupid of people. You know, this morning I want to talk to a little bit about the dangers of rock and roll. And all the old people go, oh, good, they're going to hit the younger generation about their music. And all the young people are going to say, oh, we don't want to talk about this. This isn't anything to do with us. Well, hear me out here to start with anyway, and we'll go on from there. Uh, I didn't realize this at all, but do you know rock music found its roots back in the early 1920s? Uh, and it gained its way into popularity back in, right up in about the 1950s. The title itself, rock and roll, absolutely being really a taboo saying back then because it had a crude innuendo to it. And certainly you know the lifestyle of of the whole uh, rock uh, music and the musicians has been particularly hard on artists over the years, especially between the ages of 30 to 50. And we could probably all think of, of numerous uh, celebrities in, in rock and roll that had their life cut short because of the lifestyle they were living. Well, with that said, uh, you know, you can actually trace the first death by case of rock and roll Way before the 1900s, you can trace it back into the Old Testament. 
And you say, where are you going with this? Well, I believe it's found in actually 2 Samuel chapter 6. And we're going to read the first eight verses of it together. And here's where I believe you find your first death by a, the, uh, by a rock and roll. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Let me read to you verses 1 to 8 and we'll go from there. It says this. And again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood. There's your guitars, guys. And on harps and stringed instruments and on tambourines, on sistrums and on cymbals. There's your drums. And when they came to Nashon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of that place Para Perez Uzzah to this day. You say, how do you know what kind of music they were playing as they came in and danced and and they sang before the Lord. I have no idea what kind of music they were playing. All as I know is that the cart rocked, the ark rolled, one man put his hands up to get in on the celebration and ended up dead. There's your first case of death via rock and roll found in the Bible. I used to get upset about this story. It seemed so unfair when you think about it. Here's one man being punished for trying to do something that seemed so good, right? But when you get a closer look at the text and you start to understand it in its, it's in complete, uh, completely what the scriptures have to say about the Ark of the Covenant and all that, you start to get a little bit of a different light cast upon the story. It used to bother me as a kid that you would read this story and Uzzah, the man that was trying to get things set back upright, who touched the Ark, ended up dead because he tried to do something good. Well, let's kind of put the setting together. First of all, you've got David on the throne of Israel. King David is finally in his rightful place. Saul is no longer king over Israel. He's off the scene now. And David isn't just king over Judah, but he's king over the entire nation of Israel. And he desires to put everything in its rightful place. And one of those things that he seeks to do is bring the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, the holy city. This is the city of David. This is where the central place of worship, where God's people dwelt, and David brought, wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into its proper place. What is the Ark of the Covenant? You remember? We haven't got time to study the immensity of this, this Ark of the Covenant, but we remember it's introduced back in the book of, es uh, of Exodus. Remember, the instructions were given to Moses back then. The ark was, um, you know, a box that would have been roughly about three foot nine inches long, about uh, two feet three inches wide, and two feet three inches in depth. 
It was made of a very hard wood and it was overlaid with gold. We know it was made by a man by the name of Bezalel, which is very interesting because in the scriptures, we first read that he was the first man mentioned ever in the scriptures to actually be full of the Holy Spirit. We don't find that until the New Testament, of course, the filling of the Holy Spirit in the believers' lives. But if you read back in the Old Testament how the Spirit used to come and go on men, but we find in this situation that the Holy Spirit, Bezalel, was full of the Holy Spirit. You remember the Ark of the Covenant was placed inside the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. It represented the very presence of God being with His people. You remember that that God would meet with Moses and the presence of God dwelt between the, the two cherubim angels that, that looked at one another and overlooked the ark. I try to remember some of the things in regards to the power that was always associated with the ark of the covenant. You'll remember when the Israelites were crossing into the promised land and, and the priests weren't before the people and as they set foot in the river with the ark of the covenant, we know the river stopped on one side and drained out the other side, and the people were able to cross into the promised land without getting wet, and, and the river had stopped up. It reminds me of the battle of Jericho, when, when Israel was moving in to, to get rid of the inhabitants of Jericho. You remember they marched around the city of Jericho, and on the, every day that Ark of the Covenant went with them, and on the last day, of course, the Ark was present, and the city was taken as it fell, and it was under siege. The Ark of the Covenant was huge, of huge importance for the Jews. You'll remember in it, it had the golden pot uh, that, uh, of manna. It had the Aaron's rod that budded and those tablets of stone. It, it spoke of God's sustenance in the, to the people. It spoke of God's divine leadership. It spoke of looking forward to the salvation coming in Jesus Christ. And during the reign of King Saul, over Israel, it was stolen by the Philistines. And when it was taken from the tabernacle in Shiloh, and it seems that it became rather neglected, it seemed that King Saul really didn't care about the Ark of the Covenant, really didn't focus on wanting to get it back into the hands of the people of Jerusalem. He kind of uh, became very little interested in that thing. But we know according to Scripture that what? David was a man after God's own heart and he desired to do what would be right in God's eyes and he wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to the center of Jerusalem. He wanted to restore God in His rightful place in the center of Jerusalem of His people. He wanted to restore worship. He wanted to place God where He should be in everyone's life. That's at the very center. I can picture it with my mind's eye, that as David, and we've read the 30,000 men go out to retrieve the Ark of the Covenant, it's a time of much excitement. Can you imagine that? It would be similar to us in our day, undergoing a building project, say, and, and raising a brand new church up. And as people, we would be excited to put together a, a, a sanctuary where we can meet and gather together as God's people and open the Word of God. And there'd be much excitement uh, within us as we start this building project. But all of a sudden, what would happen is as this building was being raised, that if one of our members was helping put it together, all of a sudden uh, uh, somehow had an accident and was instantly killed. You can imagine the damper that that would put on the whole building project. 
You can imagine the agony the people of the church, of us as members, would go through if, if one man or one woman ended up dead in the midst of excitement. Well, that's similar to what happened here because as David is trying to restore everything back to the center of worship and bring God into his rightful place, all of a sudden as there's much celebration amid that excitement, a tragedy occurs because of a little rock and roll that took place because some things that shouldn't have happened happened and could have been prevented and then there's silence because of this disaster. And we have to say to ourselves, how could something so right go so horribly wrong? How could something so right that God wanted to do and David wanted to bring back and have all of God's people into a place of focus on where he should be in their lives, how could something so right go so horribly wrong? Well, the text really reveals three mistakes that were made that I think we as believers today can, can look over into the New Testament and make practical application in regards to how we can focus on these areas in our life in order to avoid some major pitfalls in our life. First of all, notice with me in the text, if you will, I, I, I first noticed firsthand that David didn't consult God. David didn't consult God. David didn't approach God in prayer and wait on God in prayer and ask about how this ought to be done. It reminds me of the illustration, two men talking together, and the first one challenged the other man that, uh, that was with him. He says, uh, if you're so religious, let's hear you quote the Lord's Prayer for me. I bet you ten bucks you can't even do that. Well, the second man responded like this, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I wake, uh, if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Well, the first man looked at him with disgust in his eyes and somewhat just kind of sneered and then pulled out his wallet and pulled a $10 bill out and muttered, I didn't think you were capable of doing it. <laughs> See, we chuckle at that a little bit, but we live in a day and age now where prayer isn't the norm. We live in a day and age now where the time we call upon God usually seems where there's trouble in our life or, or when, when, when we're in need or we live in a time where, where prayer is when we're in want or, or we're looking for an answer in something. Then we decide to communicate with God. But where's the communication of, with God that God desires to hear from His people? God desires to be in such constant communion with us through the reading of His Word and the Holy Spirit that we're in tune with God, with our relationship uh, vertically and so things are right horizontally we place God at his importance if you study David's life you'll re you will you'll read time and time and again in, in particular in this passage you'll read it over David inquired of the Lord as king over Israel David inquired of the Lord David inquired of the Lord David inquired of the Lord seven times just in this passage we know David was a man after God's own heart David should have known in this situation to inquire of the Lord. Because the last time we find that David never inquired of the Lord, never went to the Lord in prayer, it ended up in devastating circumstances for him. There was an example of when he went to fight with the Philistines against the nation of Israel. And he went and asked the prince of the Philistines, can I come and fight with you against Israel? But the prince of the Philistines said, no, we're going to go into this battle all on our own. And he sent David and his men back to their camp where he was. 
But when David arrived back at his camp, you'll find that the city was burned. His, the wives of the men were taken. The children were taken. And tragedy occurred. Why? Because David never inquired of the Lord and went out on his own intuition and wanting to solve his own goals and his own anger and settle a score on his own. He never inquired of God in that situation. You'd think David would have learned a lesson from that. Turn over to 1 Chronicles 13, because in 1 Chronicles 13, we actually read a parallel passage to the same one we just read in 2 Samuel. Only there's a little more detail we find in 1 Chronicles 13 that we don't read in the 2 Samuel passage in 2 Samuel chapter 6. But 1 Chronicles 13 puts a bit more of a spotlight on the passage, and you'll understand what I'm talking about when I say that David didn't consult God. In 1 Chronicles 13, you'll read these words. It said this, Then David, in regards to going and finding and getting this ark and putting it in its proper spot, you'll read this, Then David consulted, note now with me, the captains of thousands and of hundreds, and with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, Look now, if it seems good to who? If it seems good to you, and it's of the Lord, i.e., if it's good to you, let's give it a try and we'll know if God wants us to do this. It says, let us send out to our brethren everywhere who are left in all the land of Israel and with them to the priests and the Levites who are in their cities and the common lands that they may gather together to us, notice now, and let us bring the ark of God back to us for we have not inquired of it since the days of Saul. Then all the assembly said that they would do so. Notice this now. For the thing, uh, for the thing was right. Note now, in the eyes of who? In the eyes of the people. David didn't consult the Lord. He consulted his political leaders. What's the application we can take from that? Well, simply this, folks: we must seek the Lord in every decision we make. We must seek the Lord, not only in the big decisions. We have a tendency to say we've got to wait on the Lord in prayer as to whether we go forward as a church in this direction or whether we go forward as a family in this direction. We've got to seek the Lord's direction. Well, we've got to seek the Lord's direction in every decision we make. You say, well, how big and to how small? Like, what's the smallest minute thing we need to ask of the Lord? Well, I think the principle is simply this. We're so close in communication with God through prayer and the reading of His Word that when it comes time to making a decision or when it comes time to figuring something out, we are so close to communicating with God through the reading of His Word and through prayer that we're so conscious of the presence of the Holy Spirit and how He's guiding us that we make decisions prompted by that way. I think that's the principle there. I have a question for you this morning. How much time have you spent in prayer this week? How much time have you spent before the Lord asking Him to reveal His will in your life? The perfect will of God in your life. Spent time praying and holding the ropes for one another. Spent time and, and, and just thanking God for your salvation when so many go without. Thanking God for your health. Communicating with God. He so desires us to do that and created us to be dependent upon him in that way i got up early this morning and rushed right into the day i had so much to accomplish that i didn't have time to pray problems just tumbled around me and heavier came each task why doesn't god help me i wondered 
He answered, you didn't ask. I wanted to see joy and beauty, but the day toiled long, gray and bleak. I wondered why God didn't show me. He said, because you didn't seek. I tried to come into his presence. I used all my keys at the lock. God gently and lovingly chided me, my child, you didn't knock. I woke up early this morning and paused before entering the day. I had so much to accomplish that I had to take time to pray. Prayer is so vital, so important to the spiritual health of every one of us. And David suffered consequences because he failed to inquire of the Lord and tragedy came upon a nation. Not only did David not consult God, but notice this now in verse 3. David didn't not only consult God, but he didn't consider God's word. Look at verse 3. Do you notice it here? It says, So they set the ark of God on a new cart, and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. Set the ark of the, of the Lord, the ark of the covenant, on a cart? Where in the world did David learn that? Where in the world did David think that all of a sudden that that was going to be okay? You know that as much as I know that if you read back into the book of, of Numbers, you'll find that God gave specific instructions for dealing with how to carry the Ark of the Covenant. We know that on the, on the corners of the Ark of the, Cove, the Ark of the Covenant, there was golden rings that poles were supposed to slip in and the Levites were supposed to carry it. Uh, these were God's appointed men. But what happened here is that none of that was heeded. And what it did was it took away the personal responsibility of the Levites, God's men in carrying this. And what it seemed to be was, it, it seemed to be so easily done as to just do something new with it. The handling of the tabernacle wasn't to be done by just anyone. It wasn't, wasn't to be done in just any fashion. God specifically gave instructions for how the Ark of the Covenant was to be carried. He gave specific instructions on how it was to be treated. What's the application we can learn from that? It's simply this. When we try to align the work of the Lord with the world's ways, it can be a futile endeavor. When we try to align the work of the Lord with the world's ways, it'll always be a futile endeavor. I remember reading about a church back home in my area in Ontario uh, called the Starting Point Church. And they say it's always dangerous to name churches, especially when you're being recorded and can be found online. Well, when I find something that doesn't happen according to the Bible, I don't see any problem with saying this is where it is and this is what's being done. But this Starting Point Church in Burlington, it says this. This is what the advertisement was, and, and it shocked me. It says, the Starting Point Church is designed to be fun. It's designed to be inspirational and accepting. It's not too long, it's not too early, and everyone's welcome. This is what the pastor said. He was eager to improve on some of the not-so-attractive aspects of the institution of the church. Like it's boring, it's too long, it meets too early in the mornings, it's not fun, it doesn't really apply to everyday life, he said. It's just like going to a Bible class where they teach a bunch of information, but what does that have to do with what I'm going through? He says, knowing that they... Uh, knowing that people uh, can just come with no pressure. They could just be inspired, have some fun, understand the message, and just take it or leave it. Folks, the Word of God should never, ever, 
ever be treated as a take it or leave it message. The word of God should never ever be treated with such uh, fickle understanding and and with such little interest by even the man behind the pulpit that he has it as a message that if they want it, they can take it. If they don't want it, they can leave it. David treated it that way and one man lost his life. If the church takes that approach, that it's a take it or leave it message to the world, the numbers are going to be entertained into hell and they're going to be loved into hell because we don't teach and preach a message. Men, be very careful on how you handle the Word of God when you preach. It's the inspired Word of a holy God. It's the supreme authority over all our lives. Question, how often are you in it? How often are you in it? How often are you devouring the Word of God? Reaching into it. Praying that God would stand out in such a way that it would bring you to knowing what God desires for your life. It would bring you into a spot where you can say, I'm sick of what the world has for me, but I'm understanding what God has for me. See, David did not only consult God in the terms of prayer. He didn't consider God's word. Notice lastly with me as time runs out. Uzzah got comfortable with the things of God. Do you notice that? Did you read that a little bit earlier? The ark was in the house of Abinadab. We read that. It had been there for 20 years. Who was Abinadab? Abinadab was Uzzah's and Ahio's father. And we know that the ark of the covenant had been stored there because the Philistines didn't want anything to do with it. So they sent it off to Abinadab where it was taken and placed in his house there for a number of years. Now we know they certainly didn't touch it because they would have ended up dead. But I believe they got so used to its presence with it being in Abinadab's house that there became a lack of respect and reverence towards the ark of God. I'm reminded of a tightrope walker some years ago, a Frenchman who captured the attention of the world by walking a tightrope between two towers of the the New York World Trade Center when both of them were still standing a number of years ago. And he successfully did that. But a few months later, however, while he was... Uh, practicing on a relatively low wire in St. Petersburg, Florida, just some 30 feet high, he was injured. And as he lay waiting for help, it was reportedly said that he beat his fists on the ground saying, I cannot believe it, I can't believe it, I never fall. What happened? He got comfortable with his technique and he lost respect for the height he was dealing with. A.W. Tozer, who many of you know was a wonderful um, man of God, preacher that dedicated his life to the preaching of the word and who was miraculously saved as he was working at uh, the tire company in Acro, Ohio. He was walking home and he heard a street evangelist preaching that said, if you don't know how to be saved, just simply call upon the name of the Lord. A.W. Tozer went home, locked himself up in the attic, where he poured his heart out to God and asked him to save him. We know that he had no theological training, but studied the word intently. And God did great things through him. A.W. Tozer, though, in his day, back in the early 1900s, the late 1800s and the early 1900s, became so uh, concerned with the state of the church back then that he wrote these things. In recent times, there has been a loss suffered. 
we've suffered the loss of that high concept of God and that concept of God handled by the average gospel church now is so low as to be unworthy of God and a disgrace to the church. It has been neglected, degenerate error and spiritual blindness that some are saying God is now their partner, the man upstairs. One Christian college put out a booklet called Christ is my quarterback. He always calls the right play. A certain businessman was quoted as saying, God's a good fellow. I like him. There isn't a Muslim alive in the world who would stoop to calling God a good fellow. There isn't a Jew who believes in his religion that would ever dare to refer to the, uh, that way to the great Yahweh, the one, with incommun- the one with the incommunicable name. They talk about God respectfully and reverently, but in the gospel churches, God's a quarterback. He's a good fellow. Christianity has lost its dignity and will never get it back unless we know uh, the dignified and holy God who rides on the wings of the wind and who makes the clouds his chariot. We have lost the concept of majesty and the art of worship. The spiritual parallel, I believe, to this thing where, uh, where Uzzah and Ohio got so comfortable with the presence of God's ark in their presence, I think the spiritual parallel in our day and age could be something called this, churchianity rather than Christianity. Becoming too comfortable with the church. Becoming too comfortable what we do with what we do on Sunday mornings that we've got the great ministries that we're all involved in and, and things just move along in the church, but there's a real reverence and a fear uh, and a lack of fear and a lack of reverence towards Christ in the church in North America today. We've lost our focus on who God is and the respect owed to Him and what Christ did for all of us. If we could summarize this story in simply one sentence, we'd have to say this. God's work must be done in God's way if it's to have God's blessing. God's work must be done in God's way if it's to have God's blessing. But that didn't happen. Folks, there's many people, good people, trying to do a lot of good things for God. But they aren't the best things He desires. There's a lot of good things going on in Christianity. But a lot of those good things aren't the best things. I'll close with this illustration. You folks know last year around December that I went in for surgery to have the rest of my colon removed. And you folks uh, prayed for me and... um, after the operation, there wasn't any rooms left in the ICU, and so I was sent up to a, uh, the regular floor up in the Fredericton Hospital there. And being in the, on the regular floor, I still had an epidural in my back that was taking care of the pain, which was a great thing. Uh, and on top of that, you were getting uh, dilated put in my arm as well. As, and it was a, it's a great painkiller. It's, it's supposed to do what it does, and it does a great job, trust me. Um, but what seemed to have happened is that as the floor got busier and as there became more uh, people being admitted to the floor, the nursing staff got tied up. And I started to maybe, say, fall through the cracks a bit, but 
the checkups weren't coming as regular as they were. And the pain medication was building up in my system, not only from the epidural, but the, I was getting shots in the arm of it as well to stay on top of it. But what they didn't know with, with a spinal cord injury on top of it, and the way how the autonomic system responds within me, that the drug started to suppress my respiratory system more and more and more. And to the point where uh, they were busy, I was off down in my room until it came to the point where the drug overtook my ability to breathe and I ended up coding out. They lost track of heartbeat. And by the grace of God, a young nurse came around collecting dinner trays and found me unresponsive without really any pulse or anything, and they don't know how long that was, but she called a code, blue that you're familiar with, and they, they were able to restore me back to life and health, and by God's grace, uh, am, I am here this day. But here's the principle I take out of all of that. Dilaudid was a good thing. Dilaudid was doing what it was supposed to do. Dilaudid was a wonderful thing, and it was supposed to be a good thing for my body. But even though it was a good thing for my body, the best thing for my body was to be able to breathe. Dilaudid was the good thing. Breathing was the best thing. And when the good thing overcame the best thing, tragedy could have occurred. Take the principle and apply it to Christianity. We can do a lot of good things. We can have the greatest missions program. We can have all the Sunday school programs and the Awana programs and the Vacation Bible School. But if those good things replace the best thing, then it becomes a futile and dangerous thing for the church of Jesus Christ and for every one of us. Folks, I don't know where you are in your walk with the Lord today. I don't know every one of you. And I don't know what every situation is you're going through. But I can guarantee as much as we read back in history about the tragedy and the devastating events that occurred in the life of this, this man and in that time where Israel was looking to all of a sudden get back to God but all of a sudden tragedy befell them. I can guarantee one thing. That if you don't continually consult God as a believer, you're aiming for trouble and you're going to be left destitute and wanting more. I can guarantee not only if you don't consult God will you be empty, if you don't consider His Word, and not only consider His Word, but obey His Word, you'll be left stranded. And you'll be heading for shipwreck. And I can guarantee that if you get comfortable with the status quo of just belonging to a church based on a... on you had a one-time commitment to Christ. Oh, you may be saved, but you'll go through life in a real miserable way. You'll go through life in a dangerous way, not being able to live up here where the best thing is and just settling for the crumbs of what God would have for you rather than feasting on the riches of His Word. Heavenly Father, You've given us a passage with great example. Oh God, we need to take you at your word. We need to recognize the fact that you wrote a book inspired by the Holy Spirit with every word poured out from you. 
so that we may understand you better, so that we may avoid the tragedies that we bring upon ourselves. Heavenly Father, you've designed us in such a way that you want us to communicate with you. And you've given us the Holy Spirit, who we know intercedes on our behalf, but you desire to us to pray to you. And we have that free intercession to come before you based on the very work of Jesus Christ. Oh God, my prayer is that if there's someone here that has never come to understand who Jesus Christ is in their life, has never placed that our Savior, the one who took their place, took the punishment for their sin, understanding that He's their only way to eternity with you, that today they would bow the knee. Because one day, they will bow the knee. God, I pray that we would be a people of, of a passion to open your word. We'd be a people with a passion to communicate in prayer. And we'd be people with passion that isn't really wanting to fall under the guise of just religion. But we would live a life knowing that Christianity is a living relationship with a God that's living and alive and isn't run by a set of rituals and rules. Work in our hearts, we pray. Thank you for your time, the time we've had now with your word. May the Holy Spirit do its work, His work in our lives. And may we be readily and wanting to change as we head out of these doors, as we wait, Lord, for your imminent return. We look forward to it. We pray these things in Christ's precious name.